0: Well, we're almost a self-hosted 100. Welcome into 97, everybody. And I thought as we ticked up, we should reflect back on some of our biggest self-hosting L's, as the kids say. I thought maybe the audience could send theirs in, too, uh, as, we, as we kind of bump along. But I was thinking back on this today, and there's so many embarrassing moments, Alex, you know, really? It's just kind of like, what do you, what do you define as a huge mistake? I'm curious if you've got any that come to mind. Oh, for sure. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) The phrase that comes to mind, though, is
1: education is not free. Oh, so teachable moments. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This isn't a self-hosting related one to start with. But, for example, a few weeks ago, I thought, let's power wash the engine bay of my R32, which is a car from 2004. Do it lightly. Don't put too much water in. Right. I then go to start up a couple of days later misfires out the wazoo oh no (laughs) so it turns out i got a bunch of water in the coil packs (laughs) and uh so i ended up nearly 300 dollars deep for a whole new set of coil packs and spark plugs uh just because i wanted to clean my engine bay education is not free that's what i mean like i now know not to wash my engine bay but hey what are you gonna
0: do you want it to look nice right it does look nice now (laughs) <laughs> I was really thinking, too, like, oh, it'd be nice to clean my engine bays. I'm glad you did. <laughs> oh, no, no, <laughs> I, I, did, it, I did it on
1: our car. The, the newer car's fine. The the waterproofing's fine. But on the VR6 engine that's in the old car, apparently the seals around the tops of the ignition coils is uh, a known common Mark IV thing. So now I know. And now all the listeners know, too. So hopefully they don't do this, the same the same thing.
0: Yeah. Spread spread the word, (laughs) don't don't flood it. I was thinking most more recently one thing that caused me a lot of trouble that took me about two weeks to figure out. So I'm also embarrassed it took me that long, but I blame work. I put my Zigbee stick for Home Assistant like right next to where I have my AP mounted for my Wi-Fi, and of course Zigbee's two point four. I've got a very active two point four Wi-Fi network for my IoT devices. It just totally totally blasted over my Zigbee network and I think a lot of people make that mistake because I was noticing in our in one of our chat rooms this last week that somebody was like oh it's I give up I've tried to make Zigbee work and it just doesn't work um and it's it's tricky it's tricky because there is that 2.4 com, you know competition and then um I think it also needs a little more boost than uh the Zigbee or than the Z-Wave network did so It took me recently, you know, this is just a little bit ago, like two weeks of just crap not working. And that's always embarrassing when a family member barks to the speaker to do something or they hit the button on the dashboard to do something and it doesn't happen. And it's always like, Dad, it doesn't work. Oh, okay, well, I'll go reboot the thing. I'm sorry. I'm sorry the light didn't turn off Um, or like this is one that that has happened now a couple of times. It affected our buddy Brent when he was visiting. I have that nighttime script that shuts down all the lights in a nice sequence to let everybody go to bed. But of course, if it loses communication with the Zigbee device, it doesn't shut that light off. And this was a bright LED light strip in the kitchen that just didn't turn off. And I didn't know because there's no like air that comes back. It's just really embarrassing when that kind of stuff happens. So that, But I think the biggest albatross around my neck would be my long, long history of just migrating NASs And just moving huge data sets every time I migrate to a new system. It's just a mess. (laughs) It's just a mess. And I still drag it along with me from server to server. And don't tell me you put it in a folder marked,
1: I don't know, QNAP old.
0: Yeah, something like that, basically. yeah. Yeah.
1: (laughs) Or to sort, to be sorted, QNAP was, I don't know what it is.
0: Something like that. Yeah, definitely been there. Every now and then I go in there and I'm like, is there anything to clean up? And I'll find a couple of things. But it's, it's so many choices to make. It's like cleaning out the garage. Yeah. Some of the stuff I want to keep, but it's just, it's huge. My my biggest self-hosting
1: faux pas was hardware related, I think. Mm. I went with my gut instinct when you asked me the question before the show. I thought my mind instantly went to a time, this was when I was, uh, I think I just bought my very first Raspberry Pi 1. So it must be 2012, I guess. Aww. I was working at the Apple store uh, part-time hours. So I, um, my wife was doing um, teacher training. So we weren't exactly flush with cash at that point in our lives. And I had a an Unraid box that I'd, I'd built just before we moved house a few weeks prior. And in that move at some point, I don't really know how this happened, but a screw fell out somewhere and it landed on top of the power supply. And the power supply back then was at the bottom of the case. Um, it was a fractal something, or maybe it was an Antec mm. something. It was probably an Antec okay. back then. <laughs> and I didn't notice this screw until uh, I picked the computer up to move it and put it into the closet that it was going to live in. Uh, I heard this little tink. The rattle or whatever? Yeah. No, it didn't rattle. It just went tink into the into the power supply. And I was like, oh, no. Huh. Wonder what that was. Didn't know. Plugged it in, turned it on, and then everything just went pop and everything's went. I'm oh, like, I'm like what the f just happened? What just happened? Uh, so I, you know, took the power supply out because it, it was clearly the power supply that went bang. Yeah. Oh man. Took the power supply out because it was a modular one. I could take the cables out nice and easily. Gave it a little shake and I was like, uh oh, uh oh. Turned it upside down and out fell this screw and that was ha- literally missing a piece. Of metal because it had arced so much it was it was a weird shape so yeah that was mine so I ended up having to spend I guess a hundred quid on a new power supply when I really didn't have a hundred pounds to spend oh that does hurt it it didn't fry the motherboard or anything else though I don't remember but I don't think so I think I'd have remembered yeah. that but yeah it was uh yeah just one of those moments of if you hear something go tink don't ignore it
0: you know yeah could be something in the power supply. Yeah, I definitely know that feel. The old power supply popped smell is a familiar smell of mine.
1: This is a good story. When When I was a kid, this, this, must, have, this must have been, I was still in high school, on the back of, of computers. And obviously, this is a problem that will not affect our American friends. But in Europe, power supplies back then weren't auto-switching, the cheaper ones. They had that little switch on the back that you could switch 110 to 220. Yep, we had those. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, it was less of a problem for you if you flicked that switch because you're the lower voltage over here, right? Yeah. <laughs> I remember <laughs> flicking that switch and having a similar kind of moment <laughs> <laughs> because I didn't know what voltage was or did because I was like 13 and stupid or something. And then uh <laughs> my parents were separated at that point. And I remember taking the power supply out of the computer, going to my other parents' house and saying I've broken the computer at other parents' house. Can we fix this before I get in trouble? <laughs> 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 so we took it to PC World or whatever and got a new power supply fitted back in the dark ages. But uh, yeah,
0: I've not had much luck with power supplies, it turns out. Yeah, there's, there's been there's been a few times I've lost power supply. One time I remember breaking my dad's computer. Oh, I remember. Too. It was like, <sighs> that's, a, that's a certain kind of feel-awful when you break dad's computer. And that was back in the DOS days, too. So it was really broken. There wasn't, like, much fixing. Yeah. Turns out
1: once you let that magic smoke out, it's pretty hard to put it back in again. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've lost a little bit of the
0: magic smoke out of Joplin, I have to say. Oh, yeah, you were saying, yeah. I'm a little disappointed. I wanted to give it a real go. You know, we've talked about notes plenty on this show. And I'm a little annoyed, frustrated, and angry (laughs) that I am yet once again here. And I'm a broken man with a broken note system, and I have been scorned, Alex, and I'm frustrated about it. You know, I'm looking for something that lets me throw PDFs and pictures of invoices and documents and receipts and text notes, and then three or four years later come vaguely find it with pretty in-depth search and analysis. And it needs to also have some collaborative sharing features. For notes, at least, maybe even more, like, tasks and things like that. Has to have offline mode, obviously, preferably self-hostable, and it needs to have markdown support. And Joplin, Joplin, Alex, it got so close. It gets real close, yeah. Until it eats your face. Did it eat your face? Yeah, kind of like that like that monster from Aliens. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, you know, I knew... The red flags for me, which I should have paid attention to immediately, was for me, at least, the UI is kind of almost unacceptably leggy in some cases. You know, when you click on something, you're almost like, did it just lock up on me? Oh, no. OK, there it goes. And it's just that all, all the time. Um, so I decided I would kind of route around that by using VS Code with an extension. So I got Joplin using WebDAV. It syncs with my NextCloud. I'm using VS Code as the front end. Okay, we're kind of cooking with gas. This is working pretty good, right? Until it doesn't. And for some reason, on one of my more important workstations, the extension just doesn't connect anymore. It's all local host. It's all right there. The Joplin app is running. It's very straightforward. And there's really seemingly nothing I can do to fix it. I have like no recourse. I could reset it up and it still doesn't work. So that's just broken. Will that break somewhere else now? I don't know. Maybe. I guess I'm going to find out when I sit down on one of my laptops and it just doesn't work. But I've kind of lost that that confidence. And then then there was a bad moment. Linux Unplugged members probably heard it in the live stream recording. I was going to look something up real quick because I had to refer to something that I wanted to talk about on air. I had it in Joplin. I had all written it up in VS Code, which just automatically saved to Joplin, which is such a great workflow. Open up VS Code, start writing, save it to the Joplin database. Boom. Come down here, open up my Android phone, because I'm an Android phone user now, as you know. Open up the Android phone, the Joplin app, fired up. I love that it has bioauthentication. So I do the fingerprint scan on my Pixel 7. It opens up and it starts syncing. I notice it's only got a couple of notes in there, which seems weird. And then I get an error, Some sort of SQL database error on my freaking phone. I get a SQL database error and the sync fails. And the note that I need to read on air at that very moment doesn't pull down. So we have to pause the entire production of the show, which is live while I walk my ass upstairs and pull up the note on the application that's running up there and copy it into a hedge doc and paste it into a hedge doc so I can get access to, access to it here in the studio. So now I've had it fail in multiple different ways on me. I haven't lost any data because I have the markdown files, but I've I lost all faith and trust in the application. And I don't like the core application itself. And the core issue I have is, This search functionality is kind of a quintessential feature and the better the wife approval factor, the better the overall adoption and quality of information will get in there because I had her buy off on Evernote and she was starting to use Joplin and she can be a great resource for like putting in notes about service things for the RV and documenting different things around the garden. She can be really good at that, but she has to like the application. She'll kind of use whatever I kind of, force on her and she's not going to say no but she's if I get an enthusiastic endorsement she's going to embrace it and extend it and make it better than just I could so the wife approval factor plays a role here as well Joplin sort of has a simple UI sort of as obvious and so it, it, it met that requirement as well but I think I'm out I'm out yeah it ate some
1: data for me one time and the thing is about note-taking apps. Do you, do you know how many times, well, not just note-taking, not just note-taking apps at all. Do you
0: know how many times I'll let a system, whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> eat some data of mine
1: before I throw yeah. it out the window?
0: Yeah. Once something does that, you never, you never trust it again. It's done. Right. And this is how we feel about getting like the, the VS code disconnect and the sync breaking. I'm just like, oh, I'm done. I need this to be really rock solid. It kind of needs to be just plumbed in and always working. So uh, I'm there with you. Can I tempt you once again over
1: to the Forbidden Garden of Obsidian's Delicious Fruit? There's a link in the show notes to one area of Obsidian's functionality that I think is, it's proprietary to Obsidian, but it is still based in Markdown. And this is called Canvas. And these are kind of like open documents that you can insert other notes into like a tabletop, almost like you'd think of each, think of each note, like a piece of paper, but it references the notebook underneath or the notes underneath, like a stack essentially of notes. Mm-hmm. And then you can rearrange them around different sizes, different colors, different shapes, whatever you want, have images or not, or text or not. And I it sort of got me thinking this post that's in the show notes was someone was laying out their garden and talking about how they are planting various vegetables at different times of the year and what the seeds they use were and what the care regime should be for that particular plant at their latitude etc etc and i just thought you
0: know if nothing convinces chris and hadia to switch it'll be it'll be this i hadn't really wrapped my head around canvases is this new because i tried obsidian and i don't know if i even messed with canvases. fairly new yep okay hmm that might that might change because I think my core issue with Obsidian is I don't really get it. I open it up and I'm kind of like, it's almost too much of a blank canvas. And I I need something that kind of, I just start working. I kind of want to open it up and immediately start capturing. I don't want to set it up and build it. I kind of just want it. What I want, what I want is self-hosted Evernote. I want Evernote. That's what I want. But if you've tried Evernote recently, holy crap, it is upsell mania. Like pop up, full modal screen pop ups for anything you do in the UI. You want to set a reminder for a note? Gotta pay more for that, buddy. You want to bring in a calendar item? Gotta pay more for that, buddy. You want to rearrange the main screen in Evernote? Gotta pay more for that. Like every single thing and every time, boom, full screen pop up. And because I paid with iTunes back in 2008 for some sweetheart deal, they really want me to upgrade. <laughs> So I just want Evernote is what I want because that fricking PDF and text search, it can even search handwritten notes. Yeah. And so I think I'm kind of familiar with some of the search options via plugins with Obsidian. But how would I synchronize that between Hadea's client, which would be mobile, my desktop client and like make sure I have all of those same sets of plugins so the thing I would build would work on both of those. Like that seems really tricky. Well, I I gave in and paid for their official
1: sync, which I think was about 80 or 90 bucks for the year. Uh, I look at it much like the Nebukasa subscription as supporting the development of the project that I like to see. Uh, I'm using every day, so I feel like they should derive some value from the value I'm deriving, right? But, uh, you know, what I was thinking for you, maybe, that would work well would be Obsidian Treats folders, um, like high-level folders, uh, and they call them vaults. So you could have a garden vault, which would be a folder that gets synced on the back end by Nextcloud or, or an S3 sync or Git or their official sync service or whatever you choose to use. This This is the thing where it gets a little overwhelming. It's almost like Linux in a way. There are so many ways to do it. There are so many distros to pick from. There are so many different sync services to pick from that it's like, Okay, but just tell me which one should I, should I
0: use. And if I use their sync service, the files are still offline. They just wouldn't be syncing if I was disconnected, right? Correct. They, they end up on your local device. You end
1: up with a local cached copy on, on that device until it connects and yeah, pulls I down live the fresh. with that.
0: Now, my other question is, is there, does their sync service facilitate sharing notes between users? Is that built into Obsidian at all? I don't think so. I, I don't
1: know the answer. Maybe they have a Teams function. Uh, Maybe we should look into that a little bit further. But, you know, what I was thinking was you just could, you two could just share a A sync account or something. Mm. Mm. Um, Or you both have access to Nextcloud, right? And then you just put all the notes that you want to share into that specific vault. So, you know, a gardening vault, an RV maintenance vault. Um, Because it can be tempting to just have one massive vault. But, you know, sometimes I don't need my, you know, HD my hard drive smart stats to live next to my golf r break talk spec notes you know for all the different bolts and stuff like it's up to you to organize it however you want i mean i've started off i've just got one big vault and for me that's working fine at the moment because it's just me using it i've got um I, I say i've got one vault. i've got two i've got one vault for all my notes and documentation all that kind of stuff and then i've got a second vault where i've enabled things like the optical character recognition stuff ocr oh so the plugins are per vault yes they change the context there's like a json file that lives in the vault so when i share a
0: vault say like i do a vf folder through sync that would sync the plugins we're using sort of automatically then because they're just stored inside that vault oh i get it yeah okay
1: yeah so you you switch context essentially
0: okay hmm that's cool
1: yeah, it's pretty nice. So, you know, you could go down the rabbit hole and install 75 plugins in your own personal vault if you want to and have all sorts of crazy template stuff doing data view queries and pulling in this and that and the other. And Hadea just wants to put in when she last watered the onions, you know? Like, Interesting. That's really know.
0: nice that you can go crazy in one and have the other one sort of simple because that's exactly what I'd like to do. <laughs> now, I think you could also,
1: um, because it's just plain files underneath you could use some of the different community plugins not the official one to sync to multiple places so if you wanted to sync a subfolder of a vault somewhere you could probably get clever and do that if you wanted to but it'll be up to you to experiment with that i think cuz uh, pretty quickly the complexity could ramp up there if if you let it but uh, in, you know just in terms of getting started Just There's a lady on YouTube called Nicole Vanderhoeven, I think her name is. She's got, like, red hair or pink hair or something. Uh, And she just calmly talks you through Obsidian uh, and all the different plugins and stuff like that and some, some strategies like tags you could use if you want to or, you know, should you use the folder structure to store your notes? Does that matter anymore? Or should it all be tags or should it all be links or a mix of all three? There's a lot of different schools of thought because everybody's brain Works differently in stores information and retrieves information differently. Uh, it really depends on what you want to do, but I I found it great. I love being able to go through the all the mail that's come into the house. I just scan it on my phone. You know, let's say I had a letter about my car. It's probably got my VIN number on there somewhere, and if I search the VIN number of my car, I get all the letters from VW about recalls and like everything just comes up and it, it searches the text for me. It's it's wonderful. It really is wonderful.
0: How's it doing that OCR? Is it? I mean, I know it's a plugin, but is that all done locally on the machine? Do they offer like a cloud scan? How's? I that think happen? it's local. Yeah. Huh. All right. Do you, do you, well, you know, I got to check that out. You know, <laughs> that <laughs> that does, that would do it. Yeah, there's a plugin called Text Extractor that I use to
1: extract the OCR stuff, and it works with PDFs and images.
0: I'm writing it down. Text Extractor. Boom. I'm going to try that. Thank you, Alex. All right. I'll see what she says. We'll give it a go. I like the idea of the canvases. I think taking that approach to organize it just visually won't make a lot of sense to her. And I think that could be the lens into Obsidian that sticks. We'll see. Well, I'm surprised it took this long, but it seems that Drobo is reportedly filing for Chapter 7 bankruptcy. Old Drobo. Did you ever own one? Almost. Almost. <laughs> I, th- I think I was
1: really tempted before I got into Linux properly. This fabled 1.5 terabyte hard drive that I've spoken about on the show many times that led me to being sat in this chair right in this very moment, I think, uh, that locked up. I remember doing the research, and, and at the time, this would have been, I guess, 09, 10, something like that. Uh, Drobo was the hot new kid on the block. Their their first product, I think, came out in something like 2007, but by 2010, they were starting to get the attention of the tech press back then was a little more simple. <laughs> so I remember seeing one of them featured on Techzilla, I think it was, back in the day with uh, Patrick Norton and Robert Heron and uh, all those guys. Veronica Belmont, I think, covered them. But, you know, like you said, the the only surprise really here about Drobo, Drobo as a company dying is that it took this long. I mean... They were a company of
0: failed promise. Yeah, they really were trying to solve a problem. And that was essentially bring, bring RAID and redundancy and resizable RAID to the average consumer. And they started as an external you know, USB or FireWire, depending on what platform you were on product. And they eventually moved into like those large server Drobos. I don't know if you ever saw those, Alex, but they had like giant server NAS Drobos that would have all these drives in there. And Drobo tried to make it possible to have mix matched drives. So, like, you'd, you know, instead of just retiring a disk, maybe you'd slide it into your Drobo. And so maybe it made sense to have a Drobo that allowed you to have even more drives. But anybody that's familiar with RAID and um, just general performance characteristics, of a setup like this knows you were always, always, always going to hit performance bottlenecks and you were going to hit limitations due to various drive sizes in there. And of course, if there was failure, it was catastrophic failure. And the only way to be redundant would be to have another Drobo, which got very expensive because these were, you know, starting around $1,200. They were not cheap, but as a very, very early YouTuber, in fact, we were, We were watching a video I did 11 years ago on YouTube. I found them appealing because I was looking for a way to archive footage. And so, uh, I, I ended up picking one up, you know, you know, like 11 years ago or whatever it was and was consistently disappointed in it. It really was unfortunately a very poor performer and I inevitably couldn't even use it just to like dump backup data on it. It, it, uh, it really was a shame. It never quite lived up to the promise. And I think the only way it could have survived this long is they must have had some big, fat support contracts. I know later on, they really, really focused on performance a lot more. You know, putting several you know RAM slots in there and NVMe cache slots in there and gigabit Ethernet. And then eventually supporting iSCSI directly with the Drobo Elite. I get it. Um, but, but at the same the time-, time period... Synology
1: came along doing the same thing ostensibly and did it 10 times better for half the price and they had a browser-based operating system was what felt like if you've ever used a Synology you know you can load up a browser and you can literally use applications in the browser to configure the thing there's no weird you know configuration stuff to do so I think, you know, the writing was on the wall early on, probably within the first couple of years, really, that Drobo just couldn't quite keep up. And I, I don't know why they failed, because they, their design language was pretty good. They looked really nice. It was just a shame that the embedded
0: CPUs and all the rest of it couldn't keep up. And I, I, don't, I don't think they were wrong. That, that simple but effective light system they had on the front of the Drobo that told you how full it was, and it told you if a disk needed attention. And so you could sit down in the morning, you'd fire up your machine, the Drobo would start up. And if there was anything you needed to know about, you had a visual indicator. And I actually thought they did a really good implementation there. And the idea that you could just slot in mix match disk of reasonable sizes and just continue to have redundant storage is appealing even to today. Like if I could have, say you could go out for. Two hundred bucks and get a big chassis that you could just slot a bunch of spinning rust into of all various sizes, and it would just create a redundant array of storage on a Samba share. That'd be pretty nice. I know I could build something like that, but I, I don't want to. <laughs> I don't got the time for that. I just don't have. I'm not going to pay twelve hundred dollars for a Drobo just to have something that never performs the way I want. At that point, I'm pretty. Then I would be motivated to build it myself. <laughs> nothing like that even exists today at a
1: reasonable price. I mean, there's the 45 drives stuff, the Storinators and the big boys that they have, but they start, I think, at like $5,000, which is just way out of reach for most of us at home. But to be honest, the only thing that kind of comes close to meeting that bill is uh, Synology or a QNAP type system with the Intel Atom type CPUs they have in them. They They kind of do the trick. But you know what's weird is I was looking through the the dates uh, as we were researching this episode, and uh, 2005, you know what's special about 2005? Is that when Drobo started? That's when Drobo started, but that's also the same year that Unraid started. Interesting. Very different approach, and look who's still around. The need to support mismatched drive sizes was clearly there, and certainly back then I think it was a lot more important because drives were physically so much smaller. They were, you know often you had a 500 gig drive and a 750 and a, and a one terabyte drive. Th- those were the sorts of denominations we were talking back then. And nowadays we quite happily just throw 10 terabyte drives around as if they're candy, but you know, they weren't back then they were the stuff of dreams. And, uh, I find it really interesting looking at the, the ways all these different companies approach the same problem. Synology came up with their hybrid raid solution. I, I can't remember off the top of my head what QNAP did, but I think they had one too based around, um, lvm or maybe it was butterfs i can't remember
0: one of them does butter and one of them does lvm i know that's yeah
1: but unraid came along and they
0: used riser fs if you remember that thing back in the day i loved riser i used riser in production a lot um it was actually a really great file system for uh small files lots of small files it had extended attribute support which is critical for a samba network with a bunch of windows clients and um you know it did journaling and things like that that you wanted that extended didn't do at the time it was i i really liked riser for a long time yep. shame about the whole murder situation it, yeah
1: yeah minor issue huh yeah. hate the artist or hate the art <laughs> I, i'm not sure but uh, i mean unraid clearly these days has gone from strength to strength and is an incredibly popular thing in the self-hosting world for a lot of us it was the gateway drug for me as you know if you've listened to the show for a while but uh, what are some good alternatives these days i mean we've touched on a couple of them You know, like if you're going from scratch, I mean, there's maybe the the true NAS iX
0: systems stuff, maybe that's kind of good, but I, I would definitely consider that if I needed a lot of storage. So I was just thinking when we were talking here is like, how much storage do people need these days? Because I've got two terabyte SSDs in a mirror, so I have four terabytes of usable space. Yes, I know it's dangerous, but they're backed up. It's not as much space as I would like at home. But if I only keep, like, the things I'm actively watching and the files I actively need, I don't really need more than about four terabytes, it turns out. And I think some of us should wonder if we really need to be digital herders of everything. Now, this is coming from a guy who's got another server that has many tens of terabytes of stuff so i get it r slash <laughs> data hoarder put your pitchforks down it's okay we'll yeah. be fine let's move on i get it i get it I, I i also want i want both right i want the small nimble solution and i want the big lots of as as much disk as possible solution yep, yep, but yep, yep. if you just didn't have like you know 30 terabytes of stuff then you could have a really simple setup that is really basic and an opportunity to learn some basic Linux skills and, you know, could just be a couple of disks. I mean, you know you know me. I'm a, an aficionado of
1: uh, MergerFS and SnapRaid for, for many years now. Perfectmediaserver.com if you want a full guide of how to go and set that up. Um, but I was just logging into my server to have a look at my MergerFS array, and I've got, I think, about 10 or 11 hard drives in that system. Two of them are earmarked for ZFS. So all of the data I actually care about lives on a ZFS mirror. And then that gets replicated using um, Sanoid and Syncoid. Everything else is stuff that's been acquired, if you know what I mean. And uh, if it went away tomorrow, I'd just get it again. Like, I wouldn't care too much. I mean, there's a few rips on there that I'd be sad to lose, but nothing on the actual Murder FS kind of proper array that is outside of the ZFS world that I really remotely care about. And looking at that particular array, I have uh, 81 terabytes available, and I'm using 39. So I've got, like, three or four entire hard drives sat there doing literally nothing right now. <laughs> and I'd I'd love to know from the audience, like, am I alone in that? Because... I just went through a few weeks ago, and I, I I go on binges of deleting stuff. On occasion, I deleted the entirety of back catalog of The Simpsons.
0: Because when was the last time you watched The Simpsons? Whoa, that's you know a mean? big one. I've looked at that folder. My my kids like it from time to time. It's hundreds and, of gigabytes. I know it's, it's doing nothing. It's huge. I know. But then, like, what happens when you want to watch the Halloween special next Halloween? You know, I never like the Halloween specials. <laughs> yeah. the, the kids do. The kids do. But yeah, I know. I've I do the same thing though. I just deleted a couple of series today. I'm like, this is a crappy Netflix show. I'm never gonna watch. Why did I want to ah, delete? I do that same thing. It feels good. Yeah. Now before
1: we move on topics, I should uh, I would be remiss not to mention that 45 Drives are actually working on a brand new Skunk Works project called 45 Home Labs. They're currently soliciting feedback through Reddit and Twitter. We'll put a link to that in the show notes for you to go and find it nice and easily. I would love 45 drives to come out with something, I don't know, two products. I think that's what they should do. One is a flash-based, like for 2.5-inch sized or NVMe-sized drives. And then the second one is for big spinners, so I can still store my 50 terabytes of stuff uh, should I need to. Um, but I think I don't think it needs to be much bigger than that. And as long as it takes a commodity motherboard and a commodity PSU, and I can put at least 64 gigs of RAM into it, and a decent cpu so, got you know enough physical room for the the heat output of let's say a 65 watt CPU. That's it. That's all I need. I don't I don't need something quite as small as a Synology, but it would be nice if it wasn't three times the size. You know what I mean? Somewhere in the
0: middle would be nice. Yeah, I, that's a that's that's a product that is missing. You could build it yourself, of course. We recognize that. But it'd be nice if there was a really solid solution for that. Maybe, uh, maybe somebody will have it soon. So I was browsing Reddit the other day, and I came
1: across this thing called Fasten Health. Those of you that don't live in America do not have this problem. But now I'm an honorary American these days. I have the American healthcare system to work th- work through. And uh, whenever you change employers or insurance providers or whatever, like your medical history doesn't necessarily go with you. I remember in the UK literally taking a folder full of paper from one doctor's surgery to another at one point. So things in the UK aren't the best either. But over here, uh, you know, you have different providers and they have, you know, all the different blood test results and all the, you know, patient notes and that kind of stuff. And there's there's an act over here called HIPAA. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but... It's a health-related thing, and if you request that information legally, they have to be able to provide it to you, and it they governs a whole bunch of data protection stuff. But the nice thing about Fast and Health uh, as a self-hosted app, it's from the same developer as um, Scrutiny, by the way. You know the the ha- the smart hard drive statistics gathering thing. Sure, we talked about a while back. Uh, Fast and Health is designed to scrape all of these remote providers so you know like the signos the blue cross blue shields so all of these guys and bring all of that data into your local network it is
0: great that sounds like a perfect solution now i, I, I don't know what to do if i don't have insurance how does it work <laughs> 'Cause like that's the part where I'm like, can I set it up manually and just put that stuff in there? Can I scan docs? Like, what are my options here?
1: Well, all these providers will have records. I mean, like when you had your appendix um, problem a few years ago, oh, yeah. right? Yeah, Cigna I think was the provider then. They'll they'll still have your records and it can pull stuff oh, in sure. and sure. So I was I was playing around with this before the show last night just as, you know, research. And I, I looked and I thought, Oh, the last time I had a blood test was twenty eighteen. Maybe <laughs> I maybe I should call my doctors and get a blood test so first thing this morning 8 30 i was at the doctor's having a needle stuck in my arm but it's <laughs> just it's just this thing right of, of having visibility of data like this in front of you not locked away behind whatever interface that the providers all decide to create which is honestly hot garbage this thing is built around a framework i've seen before and i don't know the name of it but if you do write in and let us know because I, I love it um but i just love having all of that data just presented to me. I love graphs, right? I run a Grafana instance at home. There's no reason I can't run that for my blood pressure as well as what temperature my bedroom is.
0: That is really a good point. It's like, that's your information. And I've, I've really thought it's always weird that I have to go to the, like, at least the last time I did this, I had to go to the doctor's office that I'd gone to each doctor and asked for, ask for a copy, you know, please, can I have a copy of my own information? And they're always frustrated and they're like, oh, Yes. They give me like the sigh. It's like, okay, fine. It really feels like all of this should just be something that I can bring with me, you know, and hand it to them and just collect it. So it's called Fasten, F-A-S-T-E-N. Fasten your seatbelts. Securely connect your healthcare providers together. Create a personal health record that never leaves your hands. That's fantastic. That's a great find, Alex.
1: Yeah, I mean, the, the core tenets that they list in the documentation are it must be self-hosted and offline, it's my medical history after all. It should aggregate data from multiple providers across multiple industries, so that includes vision, dental and medical, and it should be automatic so it should over you know it should gently poll these guys maybe every day or every week and pull in that information yeah uh, and be open source as well. so there'll be a link to the repository in the show notes. It's still early days. Um, I don't know what they're officially calling this current release, but the version number is zero point zero dot one two. So I think it's still very early days. But the little demo I tried out last night, yes, there's some stuff missing in integration to a certain providers, is a little ropey. So there will be bugs, but it's a great start. I think it's an amazing project, and i love to see it. Now, we need to talk about PhotoPRISM.
0: I love PhotoPRISM, Alex. It's a great tool. I have it sitting on top of my self-backed-up photos right now. Do you have bad news for me? I'm, I'm bracing. That's true.
1: Well, I don't know. And uh, this is an open conversation, right? I'm going I'm to get a little bit soapboxy, I think, at some points. But <laughs> I think this this is a conversation that we as a community need to have. You know, what I'm about to say is my viewpoint. That doesn't mean it's the only viewpoint. You will probably have your own and that's cool. But uh, they're they're starting to put features behind a paywall. Stuff like video hardware transcoding, for example, is going behind a paywall, even though their documentation says it doesn't. Uh, there are conflicting things on Reddit comments about whether it is or isn't. So I'm going to say it is for now locked behind a paywall. If if I'm wrong on that, please correct me. But um, I think it's a slippery slope to, to do
0: it that way. But I just wondered how you felt about that. Well, I think my initial reaction is I feel a little disappointed. I, I feel slightly rug pulled. I think is my initial reaction. Then again, when I give it a moment and I sit with it, I think to myself, this is a massive app they're building, right? It's basically a Google Photos alternative that you can self-host. That's a pretty big job, and it's really only going to get bigger.
1: What would you say to the argument that um, they wouldn't be in a position to charge now had they charged from the start? Like you say, it's a bit of a rug pull. They're they're kind of leveraging their own success in order to monetize. That feels like the
0: model we see in tech all the time. MB did it. Build Build the platform, get the users, and then figure out how to monetize the user base. It seems to be like
1: what... I mean, the weird thing is, right, Bitwarden is probably another good example. Open source product, as far as I'm aware. And they charged... I think 10 or 12 bucks a year from day one. And everyone was like, "Okay, cool, that's your model." But Plex uh Plex started doing weird stuff with subscriptions and lifetimes and locking features behind a paywall and people hated it. And then MB was free for a while and then they started putting stuff behind a paywall and people hated it and then Jellyfin came along. We're going to see the same thing here with Voter Prism, do you think? I mean, I think you're definitely going to see it lose some users as
0: a result of
1: this. Um because I find it really frustrating when I'm when I'm looking at the you know the the threads around this, like you see any mention of anything going behind a paywall and people just go, right, yep, yeah, that's it. I'm out, uninstalling, goodbye, screw you. Yeah. Yeah, you see that. Yep. I just think it's a really entitled, petulant take.
0: You, you hope it's probably just a fringe, um, but I know it's gonna happen. I think I think you're right that it would be better received had they just sort of done this from the beginning. But if you look at what PhotoPrism is trying to do, again, be a Google Photos alternative that you self-host, we're probably still really early days, right? What the community that PhotoPrism has today is important, but tiny compared to where it should be in 5 to 8 years, right? So in a lot of ways, Most people have never even discovered Photoprism yet. So most people will come across it with this being the pricing structure going forward. Now, those of us that were early adopters feel slightly rug pulled. Um, So it's, you know, a few bucks a month for the plus version, which gives you vector graphics support, which would be kind of nice. I'm trying to figure out if I would be forced to upgrade. And I think the biggest thing I would miss would be vector graphics, but it's not a huge deal for me. I mean a lot of arguments seem to center around things like subscription fatigue. And trust
1: me, I understand that, particularly being an iOS user, like every damn app I want to use wants 2 mm-hmm. or 3 or 4 dollars of my money every month. And sometimes I just don't need that to know whether it's going to rain in 5 minutes or not, you know? Like some some of these things just do not need a subscription, but some of them some of them do like though, but you're willing to pay for Obsidian Sync, right? Because yeah. there's the value but there. It's a choice I've made, I guess, to to do that because they locked first party grade sync behind the feature paywall? Like, I guess I'm gaslighting myself with that one, but.
0: Well, I guess it's how important is it to have your photos offline and have that Google Photos like search capability where you can say dog in front of Christmas tree and it just shows you those photos. For me, that's a pretty important feature because I don't really have time to organize my photos anymore. So I kind of solely rely on search. Um, And I I also, I really still like uh, Image. I think that's also something to consider. People, if they're upset with Photoprism, might consider Image. I run them both um, just simultaneously. And I like that I could do that too. If they offered a decent annual price, especially like around Black Friday or something like that, I think it'd be the type of thing I might go in for.
1: I tell you, I I just feel like there's a lot of people in not just the self-hosting community, but. Free software community in general that don't realize that free doesn't mean free in quite the same way they think it does. There's still human effort, human endeavor, craftsmanship, work, effort, blood, sweat, tears, all the rest of it gone into creating these things, intellectual property, you know, call it whatever you want. Why should these people continue to give up increasing amounts of their time as a a project becomes more popular? for no financial reward you know they've got families presumably to feed or mortgages to pay or rent to pay or basic human stuff to pay right and they're probably doing this at the certainly at the beginning as a hobby project as a side hustle as a side project maybe they hope one day they could monetize and this is a conversation as old as time in this in this world we've we've talked about it to death as a community for many many years about how do you monetize free software I'm, I'm not talking about free as in open i'm talking about free as in beer here like it just it just frustrates the heck out of me when i see these comments of people saying oh they're going to charge money well screw that i'm out i'm i'm going to use it but only if it's completely free to me as in free as in cost and that it just
0: kind of bothers me yeah i think it's a tricky time to launch a new subscription service people are feeling a little extra tight um So I get it too. But yeah, I'm with you. I definitely see it. I think it's, it is the observer effect from the outside. You know, we're, we're pretty technically competent. We can, you and I can visualize and kind of conceptualize the challenges and the difficulty that might be involved in running a project like PhotoPRISM and some of the, you know, work that goes into it. You and I can kind of conceptualize some of that. And so can our audience because we're, we're technical. And we're, we have experience in this realm, but the truth is even the best of us are probably only able to visualize 10%. Um, like I, I just, you know, look at JB and I see what you see from the outside is like 20% of what I spend my time on. There's like this disconnect between the amount of effort and the recognition of the value of that effort for these types of projects and the way the market resolved this in the past is Adobe or whoever it would be, would put a price on a box. And, you know, that product was a $1,000. That's how they signaled to the market how much they felt this thing was worse, worth. And I feel like with the Photoprism guys, like you said, it was probably a hobby. And now they kind of want to take it to the next level. Mm-hmm. And they want to get serious. And they want to turn into a full-time job because that's the kind of work it's going to take. And to do that, reoccurring revenue means they can make predictable income projections and then they can make plans for how much time they can spend how many people can work on it what kind of things they can contract out it gives them a bit of a roadmap when they know how much money they're going to make uh you know nominally and that's the benefit to them for a recurring revenue is it gives them stability and planning and maybe lets them go full time one day probably would take a while but that would for us as users mean photoprism ideally gets even better. These developers get to spend time doing what they love the most, but users are going to have to decide if it's worth that, you know, couple of bucks a month. Let me ask you, audience, you know, a
1: hypothetical question through the airwaves. What, what is the realistic alternative to a subscription model? You know, it, it can't be ads, can it? I mean, Canonical showed, showed us just how much people love ads in their software.
0: Remember the Amazon thing? (laughs) Yeah, we don't want ads in our self-hosted stuff, right? Like, you don't want to open up PhotoPRISM and half your ads are taken away by the... So it must be donations then. You know, maybe that's the route. I don't think donations are reliable enough,
1: though. And presumably, if that was working well enough, we wouldn't be having this conversation. I think
0: so. That's my thinking. You know?
1: So I'm genuinely asking the audience here because I've certainly had several several ideas over the last few years. I've thought, oh, it'd be amazing to write this, you know, you know, self-hosted, uh, you know, app software that runs on a NAS and does all these cool things. But then, yeah, if it's open source, people are just going to fork it and nuke the license, you know, the, the monetary component. And I'm not going to do this for free because it's going to be a whole bunch of work. And I, I wonder sometimes, yes, open source is amazing for innovation in so many ways. But sometimes it can be contrary to it as well and kind of a, a stifler because people need to eat, you know, and um, write in, let us know, self-hosted.show slash contact uh, give
0: us your two cents. I'd love to hear it. I want to give a quick mention, don't have to spend too much time on it, but I decided to load up IT tools. You may have heard of this before because it's been around for a little bit. IT-tools.tech if you want to check out the demo. It is a collection of just a lot of handy tools. And, you know, for me, I've got my servers on Tailscale now, so I can just get to this dashboard wherever I'm at. You know, if you want to hash some text, if you want to generate an RSA key, if you want to do a color conversion, if you want to convert uppercase to lowercase, if you want to convert YAML to JSON, it has like all of, I mean, really dozens and dozens and dozens of little tools that are handy to just to have. Uh, to, to do a you know, maybe here's a quick git cheat sheet as an example. Oh, this is great. I've often really worried about like uploading that PDF to a random PDF to jPEG converter. It'll take care of that mm-hmm, it'll take care of that. It has all, it has silly things in here too, like phone numbers into words, uh a change mod calculator, ooh, subnet mask calculators oh, I like that. This one's handy. you know I know there's Composerizer online and stuff, but this will take a docker run command and convert it to a Docker compose file. This is a solid pick, Chris. It's nice. And it's so easy to get up and running. Uh, It's just a pretty quick little simple Docker Composer, Docker Run command. it-tools.tech. And I'll put a link to the GitHub for the Docker stuff. And you can have it up and going. And it's nice because you just bookmark it. And each tool gets its own URL. So you can, if you have a favorite tool, you can get right to it.
1: So cool. Now, you created a new room in the Matrix this week. We've had so many JB
0: Garden gnomes appear. Wow. So, uh, incredible, like I had no idea how many garden nerds were out there. Uh, wow. First of all, thanks for like, uh, you know, sharing your garden nerd love with us. And we got a request to create the matrix chat room. I'll put a link in the notes. It's garden gnomes in the JB, uh, matrix space. If you want to get in there and geek out with your garden or talk about what you're growing, stuff like that. Um, we got so many notes about gardening uh, including some boosts, a wink meow came in with 250,000 sats. Holy crap. That's our baller for this week. Hey, guys, I've been listening since episode two. I'm also a Jupiter Party member. I appreciate all the great content y'all put out. Help me get through a multi-hour commute from school, which I just graduated. Well, congratulations. Nice, That's awesome. And he also wanted to pass a happy birthday to Alex. He believes you guys share the same birthday. Uh, very possibly if the boost was on the same day. Yes, very possibly. That is exciting. Happy birthday, sir. He says, on the topic of automating a garden, I have a similar plan. and I just found out about the ESP32H2. This is blowing my mind. I'm so glad he boosted this in. He says it has a matter radio instead of Wi-Fi. Because, again, one of the things that people wrote in about is like, dude, you're going to have a ton of devices on your 2.4 now. You're going to like, slam your 2.4. They're going to be way out at the edge of the range of the Mm. 2.4. So this is awesome. So uh, Matter, which is also 2.4 gigahertz, but it's not Wi-Fi, is built into the ESP32H2. I know in LUP you all discuss using hose timers, but I'm curious what could be done in the ESPs and with granular control. Just thought I'd let you know about these. Well, they probably require a little more work. Uh, yeah, I think they probably would. They probably have promise for those of us that want to avoid Wi-Fi. I believe ESP Home is going to support these in the future as well from what I've read plan to continue to look into what can be done with these so i may write back at some point in the future with anything interesting i learned thanks for all the great content and pics you know i love messages like that because
1: i discovered jb myself when i was just graduating from from school and i was listening to tech back in the day with you and alan talking about uh heart bleed and all that kind of stuff oh
0: yeah so it kind of feels like full circle here it's a very nice moment for me thanks thanks for writing in Ready one, take four, comes in with 30,000 sats. Fantastic. I've been investigating installing a small irrigation system for my raised beds. Right now, I have a sprinkler that vaguely points in the direction of the beds, which is pretty wasteful. I was thinking of putting a rain sensor up instead of probes in the soil and a very small solar system to run the ESP and the relays. Nowhere near the scale of what you're doing, though. Excited to see what solutions you land on. This is a brilliant way. It's just a little rain sensor, and when it rains, you just delay a timer. So a timer that's just set, like what we have is uh, thanks to Dominic, we have little we have little local sprayers inside our beds that are right next to the plants. And they spray just towards the roots instead of because when you spray over, you're wasting a lot to like evaporation and whatnot. And one thing that was sent in to me by uh, NorCal Geek is this open sprinkler system. And this is an all integrated ESP8266 with an OLED display. And it has all the little bits you need to run a little solenoid so you can turn the water on and off. And, of course, it gives you all the data, all the information you might need. It'll run on 12 uh, volts DC or it'll run on um, AC, apparently. And they offer an EU variant and a US variant. That's amazing.
1: 12 volts, you just leave a car battery
0: out there and you're good. Yeah. 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 It's perfect. So this could be a really great system. We have a basic digital timer that Dominic gave us, and I, I don't trust it fully. So I'm looking into that open sprinkler. I may order one when the time is right. But if you scroll a little further down, you can see that all the different valves that it supports.
1: Uh, You got, you know, AC, DC, but I didn't even consider that you'd need to power the valves. Of course you need to power the valves and relays and stuff.
0: Yeah. There's a lot to it, isn't there? there? There is, there is, it's very geeky. Um, it's, now in retrospect it makes sense of course our audience would be geeking out on this kind of stuff because there's a lot you can do with a with a i'm garden. enjoying the rest of OpenSprinkler.com. there's like open
1: garage wi-fi door openers and all sorts of other cool stuff on there what really yeah, and it's, it's got like a little i mean you can build a lot of this stuff yourself if you want to but i think the nice thing about open sprinkler's website seems to be that it packages up all sorts of cool stuff like as a package as a kit yes and then you don't have to do the research to figure out what sensor and how it all plugs together like it's it's all there
0: and it saves a guy some time too right that's really nice this open garage thing here is like a sensor that can sense if i think if the garage is open or not
1: it's got a little sonar sensor on it so it looks a bit like wally you know (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah it just uses like echolocation to, you know, I've got one of these in mine, in my garage to tell, so I put it on the ceiling above the garage door. When the doors open, you know, it's like a two foot range. And then when there's a car in there, it's like six feet. And then when there's, the door is closed and there's no car, it's like 12 feet. Uh-huh. So I got three states from that one sensor and it's. It's nice. I like if
0: anybody it. out there has any tips for measuring tanks with sonar or something that I could use, because this is an area where I think I could, be, I could put an ESP sort of sonar system, say, on the top of my water tank. Yeah. And then have it shoot down and, you know, in theory, be bouncing off the top of the water, maybe. I, 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 don't, I don't know. But if anybody has any hot tips. I would love the
1: same thing for sawdust, because my in my woodwork shop, that my sawdust barrel gets full all the time, and I don't notice until the, the cyclone bag starts filling up. And it's a pain in the ass. So, you need a light
0: that comes on. Let you us know, please. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Marcel comes in with 22,000 sats. I've been thinking for a long time about the feasibility of power line networking for always plugged in smart devices. For plugs or light bulbs, it just seems to make a lot of sense. I don't want that cluttering up my 2.4 gigahertz. I've had success with power line adapters, even crossing circuit breakers, even though they say you're not supposed to. Do you know of anything like this, and do you see a market opportunity here? That's
1: one of those ideas. It's just like, why doesn't that exist yet?
0: That, that seems exist. So obviously it, a brilliant idea.: Right. I, I almost feel like like I, like a 90s version of this probably did exist, where the home system, the automation win over power line networking or something. It's a oh, great yeah. idea, Marcel. It's got to be out there, right? I also, by the way, still using Powerline networking in the RV to backhaul the server uh, cabinet to the telco closet cabinet thing. And it's it's still working great. That TP-Link adapter I talked about ages ago on the show, still rocking. Uh, Brandon Bits comes in with our last of our top four boosts this week with 10,000 sats. He says, I just want to say a quick thank you. I learned a lot from listening to y'all. Well, thank you, Brandon Bits. We appreciate you boosting. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. You can do so with the podcast index. Just get Albie first at getalbi.com, then head over there and uh, find the self-hosted show and send your boost in or check out a new podcast app, newpodcastapps.com. All kinds of new features in those apps. And if you'd like
1: to hire me to work with you or your small business, send me an email at contact at ktzsystems.com. We'll get a consultation set up. Uh, for the show, you can go to self-hosted.show slash contact. That's where you can go to get in touch with us. And you can find all of my stuff over at blog.ktz.me. That's my YouTube or my Twitter, Masto, GitHub, etc., etc
0: el masto i posted on my twitter today some screenshots of a mastodon client for classic mac os it's wonderfully retro you can find that at chris LAS on twitter or come find me in the federation on matrix i'm at chris LAS on our JupiterBroadcasting.com
1: matrix server as always thanks for listening everybody that was self slash 97 so you checked in on portainer again did you what prompted
0: that Good old Portainer. You know what it is, Alex? It's the screenshots. It's always the dang screenshots on Reddit. (laughs) You know, I seem like, okay, it doesn't look that bad. And I thought, okay, I I get it now. Let's go put Portainer on a system I haven't used in ages, and I don't really remember how it's set up. And I tossed it on there, because it's a pretty simple Docker Compose. So it really doesn't take much to just get it going and try it. That feels like Inception. You need to use the thing that should kill the thing Mm -hmm. to deploy the thing. Yeah, if you're running locally and you got the right privileges, right, the user has enough privileges, it can just look at the local socket and figure it all out. So Mm -hmm. um, I, 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 okay, so here's where I think it does well. I like that I can click on the containers and I can get like all kinds of information about where the data is stored at, where the configuration is stored at, information about the container that's really useful. Um, In fact, I could even pull it up here while we're looking at it. And it was, you know nice to have that i'm not gonna like discount it is a good thing to have um but it doesn't really go much beyond just sort of nice to have like one of the first things that really struck me is and i'm gonna be i'm gonna pull it up here on the stream so that way if anybody else knows what i'm doing wrong uh they could tell me but i did not see a way in here to upgrade an image now i know i'm a poor tainer newbie but when I'm in here looking at these containers, I can stop them. I can start them. I can delete them. But you're telling me I can't upgrade them? How is this possible? All I, I, like, that's all I want to use this for is to have one button to upgrade all my containers. I just want to hit one button and have everything upgraded and make sure it's done right and get errors if there's a problem. You obviously just haven't clicked around enough. You just need to keep clicking. Yeah, I guess right. If I click long enough, I'll find it. Is what you're saying? If I- <laughs> yeah, that's how GUIs work, <laughs> right? I mean, it's like along the top here. I can stop, kill, restart, pause, remove, recreate, duplicate, edit. Great. Go to the images section.
1: I think you probably want to go to the images section. Images This is okay. a complete guess, but uh-huh. is there a here? Okay, is there a section there where you can look through the tags you have, and then I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Do you define importainer? This is like real time sort of learning for us both do you define a container with latest in portainer or is it on
0: a specific tag well i actually haven't used portainer to set up any of these right so it's all imported without any of the portainer like i haven't tagged them for anything because i haven't never used portainer well i see that tag up there it's it's a low, low oh, resolution Alpine? yeah yeah a couple of like the linux server ios have tags and things like something there's some tagging in there what do those buttons next to it do pull from registry yeah that'll be it yeah, so I could update the Alpine image, right? But what I what I would like from like a UI standpoint would be not all the individual image slices. That's crazy. I want I want to go like upgrade NZBD with one button, right? And it can get all of the other layers for me. I don't, I don't need to be like managing the individual layer. Live chat's recommending
1: Watchtower instead, but uh, yeah. you know, the trouble with Watchtower live stream is that when stuff breaks i like to be there watchtower just breaks
0: stuff when i'm sleeping you know what i mean and that ain't good for no one i like pushing the upgrade button and watching the output even if i'm just doing it in a gui i want to be the one to push the button yes it's like a video game Mm -hmm. who doesn't love seeing a bit
1: of terminal text scroll by every once in a a while yeah yeah so i'm a little apparently unraised docker manager has a, a great big update update button just like what you're looking for.
0: Maybe you need Unraid in your life. Jeez. I don't know about that, but I definitely don't need poor container. I'll tell you what, I, every time I try to give it a go, I look at it and I just go, oh, it's a lot of bother for very little. Like, cause there's other ways to get the information it displays. Yep. I guess, I guess, I guess if I were managing all of my systems, right? If I had every box in here, maybe then, maybe. But even then, even
1: then, like, just, I just find UIs so frustrating. And I, it, it, it's, I hate myself for saying it because when I was new and I heard all these neck beards saying, which is now me, obviously, looking at this <laughs> beard that I've grown. like, And they
0: said, don't use a GUI, use the terminal. I remember thinking, screw you. Yeah, just learn the command line. It's real easy, bro. And I'm like, screw you. It's not real easy. It, it actually is real easy. Just...
1: It's just a couple of words that you learn, and then you've learned them for the next 10 years. You know, it's, it's pretty nice. And you can't have a complete overhaul of a UI that moves that one
0: button that you know where it was. And, and you're not going to get a faster response than text. It's just the UI gives you immediate output. It's true. And bash
1: aliases are the best thing <laughs> ever made. End of the world. End of discussion. The end.